I'll start this on the podcast, and so I'm going to talk a little project because the podcast is sitting over there, so I'm not trying to yell. It's just I'm trying to project for the podcast. So this is my kind of introduction to the book of Isaiah, and I'll show a video here in just a second. So I think all of you have a handout in front of you on the podcast. We'll figure out a way to make these handouts available so you can um, see these. But basically, to introduce the prophet, Isaiah has often been called the fifth gospel. Uh, Sometimes even you'll hear pastors kind of jokingly say we're going to read the gospel according to Isaiah, instead of the gospel according to Matthew, because it is so strong in terms of its messianic prophecies and also talking not only about the first coming of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus. They're actually both present in the book of Isaiah. In fact, one of the challenges of interpreting Isaiah is which coming is it talking about? In fact, that's one of the reasons the ancient Jews actually don't understand Jesus, is they're looking at the other coming. When they're expecting, they weren't looking at the suffering servant. They're not looking at Isaiah 53. Instead, they're looking at the, uh, the Messiah of the 60s, for example, where he is triumphing over all the nations. So they're just looking for the wrong coming, basically, is what you can say about this when it comes to the book of uh, Isaiah. A few things about the book itself in terms of authorship. Um, almost all Jewish and Christian tradition is unanimous that this is written by Isaiah the prophet himself. We don't know a lot about his personal life. We think he's somehow connected to the royal family. And the reason we think that is he has easy access to the king. Not just like Amos, you read the book of Amos, it's like real simple Hebrew and he's kind of a farmer at his plow sort of thing. He's just kind of a blue collar guy. He probably didn't have access to the kings, right? But Isaiah has rich poetry and writes at a really high literate level. It's some of the most complicated Hebrew in the Old Testament. It's considered some of the most beautiful imagery in the Old Testament. And he's talking to the kings all the time. So we think he's very well educated, very well connected. He's talking to Hezekiah. He's talking to these folks, which means he's probably running in the high social circles of the time. Okay, So we have both in the Bible. We have both high class, low class, middle class. Bible makes no distinctions right? in terms of that. It's whether or not they're faithful as far as that goes. But we don't know much more beyond that. We know he has two, maybe three children. His wife is sometimes called the prophetess. Now, we're not sure if that means that she actually had that ability or if it was just because she was the wife of the prophet, so she's the prophetess. You get what I'm saying? There's no prophecies recorded from her. We don't have any records. All we know is that it's mentioned that he's with his prophetess and he has kids by her. And the kids have very highly symbolic names. We'll get to that later, but that's all we really know. There's not a whole lot of data on that, which is kind of interesting. Um, There is some scholarly debate that's really more of a modern debate about whether or not there's been some, uh, some changes that happen in Isaiah, especially after chapter 39. So there's always, most people will recognize that you read Isaiah 1 through 39, and it seems to be kind of in one style. Then you get to 40 and go beyond 40, and it seems to be in a different style. And so there's a lot of different options there. And some people even divide it even more. They'll actually go to a third because we have a suffering servant, and then in the last one it starts talking about end of times and return from the exile and all these other things. So we have at least two, if not three, sections. Why is that? Well, there's multiple answers. In the tradition of the church and in the Jewish tradition, it's all Isaiah. There's really not been a debate about this. It's not until about the 18, 1900s with the rise of what what we kind of call critical uh, readings of scripture that people said, maybe there's something else here. And there are believers, like true Christians and, and true Orthodox Jews that do think that maybe there was like, a school of, of disciples. Isaiah does have disciples. It actually mentions that in the text that kind of collected his teachings and maybe edited some of them later when things kind of happened in history. And that's those later chapters. Whichever view, the Bible project that I'm going to show you kind of t- shows you both views too. Whichever view you hold, it doesn't cancel out the fact 
that it's still God's word. It's, that's not the issue. It's just it's an interesting interpretive thing because if it is a different theme or a different style, maybe it affects the way you read the scriptures. I personally think there's no reason to say it's not Isaiah. Um, the style change thing is silly to me. I'll, I'll, I'll say this in a couple ways. If I'm writing to my son who's t- just turned nine today, and I write to my high school students, or if, then I write to my parents, or then I write to Ralph and Michelle, I might write in a different style each time. Does that mean it's not me writing? No. Right? So that's, it's kind of a silly argument. You get this in the New Testament a lot, too. Well, that sounds too educated for Peter. You know, you'll hear stuff like that. It's like, why couldn't he use an amanuensis, the person that, like, writes notes for him? They, they all had letter writers back then, right? But even as a musician, so I have classical music training. You know, early Beethoven is different than late Beethoven. We don't go around and saying that that's pseudo-Beethoven because it sounds different. So I'm not sure why that that's, it's such a subjective view on things anyways, because who decides when the style changes, right? Who's the, who's the one who makes that? There's no, there's no actual argument in history that says that we know for a fact that somebody else besides Isaiah edited this. So until we get contrary data, other than just this internal evidence, there's no reason to just discount Isaiah as the author. Does that, does that make sense? It's just, it's an interesting argument. I put it on here because if you read study Bibles or if you look this up on YouTube or if you Google this or something like that, you might get some interesting theories. So just know, I put that down on your handout there um, as far as things go. The only archaeological evidence, I do want to mention this. Um, I don't know how many, how many of you follow biblical archaeology or uh, apologetics and those sort of subjects. But one of the most famous archaeological finds involving the book of Isaiah is the Dead Sea Scroll, the Isaiah Scroll, which predates Jesus. Most people date the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls to like the 100s to 200s BC. Okay, so 150, 200 years before Jesus. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. So now we find this Dead Sea Scroll. There's a lot of apologetics in this, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But let's just say that before they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s and 50s, which is sometimes called the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Okay? Before they discovered those, the latest Hebrew text, I mean the earliest Hebrew text that we have that was full, was something called the Masoretic text, and it dated to 1000 AD. So all of our Bible translations were coming out of 1000 AD. Now we've, we had a really good belief that it was accurate. We had quotations in the church fathers and in Jewish rabbis and, all, and we had other translations, so we knew that it was accurate. We had the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so we could check it with that. So we had all these different versions that were, they were good, right? And so it wasn't like we were doubtful, but we discovered these Dead Sea Scrolls, and now we can go back another 1,000 years, which, I mean, think about the amazing amount of, so now, now, now we had a 1,080 text in Hebrew, now we can jump back to 150, 200 and compare them. And with the exception of a few spelling things, the occasional grammatical change, it was virtually identical for that 1,000 years of transmission. It was an amazing moment when they discovered this. The most amazing thing they discovered was a nearly complete copy of the entire book of Isaiah. And so now you've got an issue because some people would argue, Isaiah 53 sounds so much like Jesus. You know, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. Well, the Christians or the church must have tampered with the Old Testament. Because remember, 1000 AD, the church has been around for 900 years plus, right? The church somehow tampered with the text. Well, now we've got a problem because now it's 150, 200 BC. There's no tampering going on now, right? We actually can read the whole text. And then, of course, the Greek translation also dates from around that time, too. And that's also present in Isaiah 53. So now you've got some pretty clean prophecies. Because we know those are copies of copies, right? So that prophecy is going back hundreds of years before Jesus. It's a powerful argument. Yeah, go for it. You mentioned the Greek translation in that 150 B.C. Mm-hmm. Why were the Greeks translating Isaiah at that time? The, 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 he, the Jews were. That's a great question. So if you ever see this, I'll write this on the board. And actually, I'll do it over here for your sake here. But if you ever see this thing in your study Bible, this LXX, yes. 
That's, that's, that stands for, it's of course 70 in Roman numerals. That's for the Septuagint. You can see it in the word sept, right? Like a, like a septet for seven people. Okay, so the Septuagint is translated because after Alexander the Great basically conquers almost the entire Eastern Mediterranean world, he, it, he went on a program called Hellenism, this idea that we're going to, and I call it for my high school kids, I say Greekification. <laughs> so in other words, we're going to Greekify everything for Hellenism. So in other words, Jews in places like Alexandria, Egypt in particular, because Alexandria is founded by Alexander, they stopped speaking Hebrew. They were, they were so immersed in Greek culture, and it wasn't just there. It was another place in the Mediterranean world where there were synagogues. You had Greek-speaking synagogues where they didn't know Hebrew anymore. So they actually translated the Old Testament into Greek. The Jews did. This is around 150, 200 BC, okay? Because Alexander the Great is about the 300s BC. So after 100 years of Hellenization and Greekification, and even in the, in the New Testament, you run into the party in the book of Acts, the party of the Hellenists. If you see that, the Hellenists, those are the Greek-speaking or Greek-cultured Jews that were even present in Jerusalem at the time. Yeah, go for it. So the Greeks would have made, I'm assuming, they would have made as accurate as possible translations. They wouldn't try to edify it or... Or uh, I mean, edit or change it. They would try to make it as exact as they could, translating it. Right, and in fact, the reason it's called the seventy to give you an idea of why that happens. The Greek translation of the Old Testament. What they did is they said, uh, "We're going to have seventy different scholars and rabbis go to different rooms and make separate copies, and then when they all came back together, it all matched." That's the legend. Now we actually know that the process was a little more complicated than that now, but at the time, that's why they called it. So it was the translation of the seventy. Hence the Septuagint, right? So yes, they would have been highly accurate. Now, there are some interesting things in it that impact uh, Bible translation later. But in the New Testament, when they quote, say, the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Deuteronomy, like when Jesus or the apostles quote the, New Old, uh, the Old Testament, it's almost always this version, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's actually because the New Testament's in Greek, right? Mm -hmm. and, they're, and it's the Greek-speaking world. So they're actually not quoting from the Hebrew version. They're quoting from the Greek version, which is actually really interesting if you think about it. And this sets up a later church debate in terms of, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament divinely inspired because Jesus and the apostles quoted it? It's an interesting question. If you say yes, that's why you include the Apocrypha, because those Apocryphal books are included in that translation. If you say no, like Jerome, St. Jerome, who's translating the Bible into Latin from Hebrew, you say no because the Hebrews never had those texts in the first place, and they never did. It's all, they're only Greek. Those Apocryphal texts only exist in Greek. So it's a really interesting debate in the church. We don't have to go in there. I've got to go back to Isaiah, but that's neither here nor there. Go for it. Do modern Hebrew uh, scholars accept the Greek translation? Oh, yeah, they still consult it because they had access to copies that we don't have anymore, right? And so they still consult the Septuagint. In fact, in some study Bibles, if you go into the study Bible and you look at your translation, you look at the footnotes and the cross-references, it'll sometimes say LXX has this reading. Right, or it says LXX has uh, an extra word, or you know, like you'll see that, and you'll in the marginal notes in your in your study Bibles, you'll have Septuagint references. It'll also reference what's called the Syriac text. Syriac is a, another Semitic language that's a, kind of it's like a cousin to Hebrew, kind of also a cousin to Aramaic, which is what Jesus would have spoken with his disciples. That language also has a Hebrew, I mean, has a has an Old Testament that we discovered too. So we have a variety of different Old Testament translations, which is actually encouraging. Um, it's the same in the New Testament, too. we got like 10,000 translations just in Latin alone in the New Testament in manuscript form. So what's awesome about this is if you destroyed all the Hebrew manuscripts between the Septuagint, the Syriac, and all the quotations, we could reconstruct the whole Old Testament anyways. 
And it's the same in the New Testament. If you destroyed the entire New Testament manuscript tradition, you could reconstruct 95% of it just from the quotations in the church fathers. And so, in other words, you can, the, the point is, is you can trust your text. So when you read the book of Isaiah, by archaeology, by transmission practices, by a variety of different aspects of, of how the, the Bible works, you can trust that the text in your Bible in Isaiah is what Isaiah wrote down. And I can get into that more later if you want, but there's some really good reasons that you can trust the text. And so I tell my high school students that all the time. The Bible you hold in your hands, I don't care if it's ESV, NIV, King James, New King James, whatever, the Bible you hold in your hands, you can trust as the original. And that even if there might be a question about a word here or there or a spelling here and there, it's if it's not there, it's in the footnote. You get what I'm saying? You have the original text. So you can trust that you have a faithful copy, a faithful transmission of the originals. Now, we don't have any autographs, right, of either the Old or the New Testaments. They copied them, right? They're, they're going to wear out eventually. So, no, no, they didn't throw them away right away, but eventually they're going to wear out. So it's okay to have, not have that. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the original text. And the fact that we have all these different things where they actually do disagree in spelling or word order sometimes is actually a good thing because it means there's not a conspiracy. There's not one guy on a copy machine just running off his version, right? The fact that we see little variants is actually good because it shows you that's a very organic growth of the text. So it's actually encouraging to see these variations. So anyways, that's a whole thing. I'm talking about this in high school uh, uh, systematic theology right now. That's why it's fresh. <laughs> it's just kind of coming right off the top of my head. You can kind of tell. All right. Um, other than that, uh, let's see. He's the son of Amos. We're going, so let's go back to Isaiah here. Um, married to the prophetess. You can see the dates on here. About 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. And I'll just kind of read this off my guide for the people on the podcast's sake. But Isaiah is written in a tumultuous time in the Mediterranean world with, with the ancient kingdom of Egypt to the south, the empire of Assyria to the east and the north. Um, Assyria was the most warlike and brutal of the Mesopotamian civilizations dating back to Abraham. So there's kind of a succession. If you've ever heard of ancient Sumer, right? Sumer, that's like Ur and Uruk, these old cities. And you have, and it's, whenever you take world history or Western Civ, it's the first civilization you learn about. Mesopotamia means the land between the rivers. Some people also call it the Fertile Crescent because it makes a crescent shape on the map. And those civilizations are kind of continuous. They have the same gods. It's just whatever city-states were kind of dominating them at the time are the ones we give them their names. So Sumer is the first one. Then comes Babylon with Hammurabi. Then after Babylon, we get Assyria. Then we get Neo-Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. Does that make sense? And so they're all in the same general area. Think modern-day Iraq. Actually, if you have the handout in front of you, if you flip it over, I put this on here on your map on purpose so you can see what Isaiah is dealing with. So you recognize, of course, so you see Assyria, um, you see the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that are listed. On the very bottom of the stuff that's shaded on the top map, you can see Ur, right? That's where Abraham's from, Ur of the Chaldees. That's what, that's what, they, that's what they call about him. Ur is where Abraham's from, and that's where Sumer is. So Ur, Nippur, Uruk, those, those towns, those are ancient towns for Sumer, the Sumerians. Okay, if you go a little bit further north, you can see where Babylon is on that map, right? So still the same general area. And if you go even further north, along the Tigris River, you can see Asher, where we get Assyria, and then the capital of Assyria, which is Nineveh. And we recognize Nineveh from Jonah, right? And so if you kind of see how close those are geographically, they're kind of all cousins to each other politically, culturally, religiously. They might emphasize a different god. So one culture might emphasize Enlil, who's kind of like this uh, kind of storm god. Then another might emphasize Marduk, Marduk. That might be the guy, but they're all kind of part of the same pantheon. If you think Greco-Roman theology, it'd be like going to one town and they're worshiping Apollo, and in another town they're worshiping Artemis. 
same pantheon, just different emphasis. And the same thing is true with Sumer, Babylon, and Assyria. Uh, these, the Assyria was the most warlike, the most brutal in terms of its rule. Um, Hammurabi, for example, from Babylon is known for his law code and being just and being wise, you know, kind of a pagan wise king. Then uh, Sennacherib and some of these other rules, rulers from Assyria, as this study goes, I'll introduce you to some of these characters because they appear in Isaiah and it actually shows these prophecies taking place. Sennacherib and some of these Assyrian rulers are just, just flat out warlords. That's all they do. They're about conquering, getting as much booty as possible, getting as much slaves as possible, and letting you know that you're beaten. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's this sort of culture, and that's what Israel's facing down. And then, of course, in the southwest there, along the Nile River Valley and the Nile River Delta, you have Egypt. And so you have, and that's always been an ancient uh, thorn in the side of Israel, although sometimes a refuge also for Israel, right? Kind of depending on the time period that we're in. And in fact, Israel often, one of the, if you want to think about world history, one of the reasons that Israel is such a big, important place is it's at that crossroads for, between these ancient empires. Assyria, Babylon to the east, Egypt to the south, and then groups like the Hittites and eventually the Greeks and the Romans from the north. They're just sitting right there. It's almost as if God placed them there on purpose for them to be the center of attention. Because they are, geographically, the center between all these ancient empires. So if you want to dis distribute the gospel, if you want to have a light to the nations, why not put it smack in the middle of all these empires? That makes a lot of sense, right? It's almost like, you know, God knew what he was doing when he did that. So, anyways, there's a lot of themes in Isaiah, and I'm going to pivot to this here in just a second. Um, a lot of themes, there's law and gospel in, like, all of Scripture. That's a, kind of a Lutheran distinctive, but other distinctions, other groups have this too. And this is from the Lutheran Study Bible, but if you notice, I included the Orthodox Study Bible. I was trying to look at different traditions just to see how it's interpreted in the time. So you could see those different themes. Judgment on false worship. Judgment Day itself, selfishness, woes against Israel and the nations, the defeat of Assyria by Babylon, uh, idolatry condemned, judgment of hypocrisy, judgment against immoral behavior, judgment against injustice. I bring that up because when it comes to the law point, not a whole lot's changed. And so Isaiah speaks to us now. It's highly relevant. In fact, I would argue that in some ways we need these Old Testament prophets more now than ever. Because when the culture seems to be increasingly post-Christian, we might have to prepare ourselves, and some might say it's inevitable, for a time of exile, where we are not the majority, or we are politically oppressed, or we are on the margins, or we have to form alternative communities, you know, those sort of things. We might get there. And if that's the case, that's exactly what the faithful remnant in Israel had to do. And Isaiah talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. We might be at that point where we need to look to these Old Testament prophets and see what their solution was for the faithful remnant. It doesn't mean that we're going to set up a theocratic state like Israel, but it does give us a hint of what God's expectations are, right? Jeremiah's got a great example. You'd expect, we're going to go into exile in Babylon. What should we do? He says, get married, plant, plant vineyards, plant corn, have lots of kids, pray for the prosperity of your city. That's pretty simple. You know, we can do that here too, right? I mean, there's some, there's some knowledge there. Isaiah has similar passages like this where you can get hints about what's, what's what we can do. So that's why I like this. And also, just because of the spiritual nature, in terms of the spiritual nature of original sin, nothing's changed. So guess what? Do we still have hypocrites? Yes. Do we still have immoral behavior? Yes. Do we still uh, forget that God rules the nations? Yes. I mean, we can go on and on and on. So, I mean, it's highly relevant for us now when we look at things and when people get obsessed with politics or obsessed with this court justice or this court ruler. Pastor's, the pastor's sermon today was awesome about this. Who's in charge? Right? Who's in charge? And if, if God's in charge, and if God is for us, who can be against us? Stop freaking out. Not that you don't care, not that you can't be a good citizen, not that you can't love your neighbor, and do, those are all good things. But in the end, 
God allows people to rule, and he also deposes people, too. He does both. He's in charge. And so Isaiah is really good for reminding us of those themes. And then, of course, you see the gospel themes, of course. And these are the obvious ones for believers. The remnant's preserved. We have Emmanuel, God with us. That's in Isaiah 7. We've got the Messiah reigning, salvation promised, even to the foreign nations. Okay, that's, again, that suffering servant. Hezekiah, the king, we'll run into him later as a, as a figure. We'll study his reign. So just be prepared that even though we're in Isaiah, you might be flipping through some other books because Isaiah references um, the kings and the chronicles, like those sort of passages. The other thing that's challenging about Isaiah, uh, referencing that, is it's not necessarily in chronological order. So it gets a little confusing at times. So we're going to try, I'm going to have some other materials when we get there that will kind of help you sort that out, I think. You know, some graphics or some charts. And I did give you, a, uh, some of you have it. I'll, get, I'll make more copies uh, uh, next week. I have a timeline for you that I'll, that I'll have prepared for you. Um, and then, of course, some of this, the prophecies and the illustrations. In Isaiah 1, for example, we have this prophecy about basically a shack in a cucumber field. Like, what does that even mean? So some of the challenges in Isaiah also are just cultural. Like, he's using illustrations that we as 21st century people in the United States probably won't understand right away. Like, why in the world is he calling them a shack in a cucumber field? Like, that, you know what I'm saying? There's like some relevance things there. So study Bibles are usually pretty good on this. If you have the Lutheran study Bible or any other study Bible, they'll try to explain these for you. But we'll try to get into a little more detail on that as we get there to kind of explain why that's such an amazing analogy, etc. Okay, and then of course the blessings are obvious in Isaiah. I'll let you read that um, for yourself. So what I want to do now is to give you a literary outline. This is from the Bible Project. Um, this is chapters 1 through 39. because that's what we're going to start, especially next week, like going verse by verse, going through the text. Um, and not every verse will I spend a lot of time on when he's, you know, talking about his son, Marishel Hashbaz. We don't have to spend a lot of time on that, although that's a great biblical name. There was a, I think it was a creation speaker or a Christian speaker once said that. It's like, I'm going to call my kid a good uh, biblical name. And he's like, well, what's, what are you going to do? I'm going to call him Philip. I'm going to call him John. I'm going to call mine Marishel Hashbaz. It's like, how do you spell it? And then you can imagine a little kid in kindergarten class. What's your name? Marishel Hashbaz? How do you spell that? I don't know. <laughs> Nobody does. You know, like, <laughs> so it was pretty funny. I can't remember who did that, but it was a pretty funny little skit he had on that about biblical names because their names meant something right back then. So this is the Bible Project. If you're listening online, this is the audio. What's nice is you're going to see this outline. Now, I will say a couple of things about the Bible Project really quickly. I don't love every single thing they do. I mean, they're not Lutherans, right? They're, not, they're evangelicals of a kind of, I would call, kind of a generic type, and they sometimes tend to de-emphasize God's judgment in a, and I don't mean that that's always bad, but they tend to say things that I would add things to. You know what I'm saying? They tend to be kind of very minimalistic or kind of generic sometimes. However, what they're really, really good at is literary outlines like this. I think you'll really appreciate this. What they do is they, use, uh, they explain how Isaiah is structured literarily, and this will be a good introduction for us, and you'll kind of see how this works. This is Isaiah 1 through 39, the section that we're going to do. They have another section for 40 through 66. But for now, we're going to focus on 1 through 39. So if you're on the podcast, you'll hear the audio for this. This is the Bible Project in Isaiah 1 through 39. The book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem in the latter half of Israel's kingdom period, and he spoke on God's behalf to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah. He spoke, first of all, a message of God's judgment. He warned Israel's corrupt leaders that their rebellion against their covenant with God would come at a cost, that God was going to use the great empires of Assyria and after them Babylon to judge Jerusalem if they persisted in idolatry and oppression of the poor. 
But that announcement was combined with a message of hope. Isaiah believed deeply that God would one day fulfill all of his covenant promises, that he would send a king from David's line to establish God's kingdom, remember 2 Samuel 7, that he would lead Israel in obedience to all of the laws of the covenant made at Mount Sinai, remember Exodus chapter 19. And all of this was so that God's blessing and salvation would flow outward to all of the nations, like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And it's this hope that compelled Isaiah to speak out against the corruption and idolatry of Israel in his day. Now, the book has a pretty complex literary design, but there's one simple way to see how it all fits together. Chapters 1 through 39 contain three large sections that develop Isaiah's warning of judgment on Israel. And it all culminates in an event pointed to at the end of chapter 39, the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people to Babylon. But in chapters 1 to 39, there's also a message of hope that after the exile, God's covenant promises would all be fulfilled. And chapters 40 to 66 pick up that promise of hope and develops it further. In this video, we're just going to focus on chapters 1 to 39. The first main section focuses on Isaiah's vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem, and it begins as Isaiah accuses the city's leaders of covenant rebellion, idolatry, injustice, and God says he's going to judge the city by sending the nations to conquer Israel. Isaiah says that this will be like a purifying fire that burns away all that's worthless in Israel in order to create a new Jerusalem that's populated by a remnant that has repented and turned back to God, and Isaiah says that that's when God's kingdom will come and all nations will come to the temple in Jerusalem and learn of God's justice, bringing about an age of universal peace and harmony. Now, it's this basic storyline of the old Jerusalem purifying judgment into the new Jerusalem. This is going to get repeated over and over throughout the book, getting filled in with increasing detail. So, at the center of this section is Isaiah's grand vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. And he's surrounded by these heavenly creatures that are shouting that God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah suddenly realizes just how corrupt he and his people Israel are. And he's certain that he's going to be destroyed by God's holiness, but he's not. God's holiness, in the form of this burning coal, comes and burns him, but not to destroy. Rather, it purifies him from his sin. And as Isaiah ponders the strange experience, God commissions him with a very difficult task. He is to keep announcing this coming judgment, but because Israel has reached a point of no return, his warnings are going to have a paradoxical effect of hardening the people. But Isaiah is to trust God's plan. Israel is going to be chopped down like a tree and left like a stump in a field. And that stump will itself be scorched and burned. But after all of that burning, God says that this smoldering stump is a holy seed that will survive into the future. It's a small sign of hope, but who or what is that holy seed? The rest of this section offers an answer. Isaiah confronts Ahaz, a descendant of David and a king of Jerusalem, and he announces his downfall. God says that it's the great empire of Assyria who will first chop Israel down and devastate the land, but there's hope. Because of God's promise to David, he's going to send after this destruction a new king named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Emmanuel's kingdom is going to set God's people free from violent, oppressive empires. And Isaiah describes this coming king as a small shoe of new growth that will emerge from the old stump of David's family. It's this king that's the holy seed from chapter 6. And the king is going to be empowered by God's spirit to rule over a new Jerusalem and bring justice for the poor, and all nations will look to the 
this messianic king for guidance. His kingdom will transform all creation, bringing peace. Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon, who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity and is described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin and one day is going to be replaced by the New Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance, and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. So that's, again, you just saw that visually, but if you heard on the podcast too, this is uh, the audio. That's what they're really good at, the Bible Project, is this stuff. You know, like just showing you the literary structure, which is kind of helpful. 
Because a lot of time you get buried in all these poet poems or something. Like, what is going on? Or I'm kind of lost, or my eyes are glazing over. <laughs> because this is like the fifth poem that I've read about judging Assyria or whatever it is. It's sometimes good to kind of see this macro view of what's actually happening. And that's what they're really good at. They're really good at showing you what this macro view is. And, and, and they do basically all the books of the Bible this way. It's actually really helpful. It's called the Bible Project. Yes, go for it. What uh, purpose did it serve for Isaiah to be all in poetry? Well, the rest of the Bible is in prose. Right, great. So that's a great question. So um, the, the Old Testament in particular, we recognize, and the New Testament too, but it's a little easier in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we recognize different, different types of genre, right? So we have historical narrative. That's like reading about the Exodus, right? There's historical narrative. There's the Psalms, which is a different type of poetry. They're usually, it's usually worship. There's different types of Psalms, right? Poetry. We have uh, prophecies that are poetic, and, and, and what Isaiah does is his poems are prophetic in nature. And so the reason you'd write in poetry, um, there's a couple of reasons. One, the ancient Hebrews were very poetic in general um, as a people. They uh, tended to speak that way. And their version of poetry is different than ours. Because when we think of poetry, we think of things like rhyming, right? We think of like Robert Frost, whose words these are, we think, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his words, woods fill up with snow. I still remember that from, I don't know when. So I had to memorize it. I didn't remember that. Mrs. Miller or somebody like that. I had to memorize that back in high school. Um, but I had to memorize a poem, so I still remember it. Um, but that's Robert Frost. Their poetry doesn't sound like that. Because we, you know, when we think poetry, we think of, or Shakespeare. We think Shakespeare, right? And all these terms of phrases. And Isaiah has some of that. But the Hebrew poetry has much more to do with, uh, like, acrostic devices. Like, we're going to use every letter in the alphabet and make a statement. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So when it says poetry, it's not poetry in the sense that maybe you and I think of it, but it's also not historical narrative. Okay, so historical narrative reads like, and after this happened, King Hezekiah did X, right? This is more when God, so for example, when Isaiah sees God enthroned in Isaiah 6, and it says, holy, holy, holy. And he says, woe is me, for I am undone. You know, those sort of things. They talk more dramatically, right, than we do. And it's the same sort of thing, and even today. Uh, true, like really orthodox Jewish families, they're very emotional. They gesticulate with their hands a lot and they get all, you know, get fired up about things and they wail, but they also laugh really hard and they party hard, you know, that sort of thing. That's very true also back here in, in the ancient Jews. So he writes in poetry partly because that's just how that, they would have recognized that. It also shows you that something else is going on than historical narrative. It draws your attention that way. It's also for memorization aid. If you're going to memorize scripture and you have a single letter like, Aleph and all these others, like A, B, C, D, E, like we would have in Hebrew. It helps you memorize scripture, right? Memorize these prophecies. So there's a variety of different reasons. They're mnemonic devices, right? Um, we also have in Isaiah a little bit, but also in the Old Testament, in like the book of Daniel, we have apocalyptic literature, which is like end of time stuff, right? Or like the universe is being undone or giving you a cosmic view, like the curtain opens and you see the universe as it really is. Those sort of things are also in the Old Testament. So there's different literature. And then, again, there's different reasons for writing that way. And Isaiah himself, the other thing we need to remember about the inspiration of Scripture is just because the inspiration that Scripture is inspired by God doesn't mean the personalities of the authors are erased. Right? So one of the things, so we know what Paul sounds like. He writes the longest sentences in the world, okay? And, you know, that sort of thing. We know that Mark is probably the preaching of Peter because it's the action gospel, Right? And that, and that, and that. It sounds like Peter talking because he's excited when he's preaching. It's Peter. Okay, so we think Mark is a record of the preaching of Peter. Okay, that's, you know what I'm saying? So we can see that stylistically in Scripture. Now, we still believe God inspired those words, and that what was contained and what was maintained was what God wanted us to have. But we actually believe in the dual authorship of Scripture. It's inspired of God. It's the Word of God, but without erasing the human element. 
So that's what, when people always say, well, the Bible's written by men. It's like, you're absolutely correct, but it was also inspired of God. That's not the debate. I don't, you're right. Paul sounds like Paul. So in the case of Isaiah, as somebody who's in a very literate, artistic, um, cultured society that he comes from, writing and poetry would have been normal. That's another thing to say, right? Just his cultural background. That's the reason I say that. So for Isaiah's style, if that makes sense, he would have thought poetically. And it's also a good way to give imagery, especially like a new heavens and a new earth. How do you write that? You know what I mean? How do you write about that? One of the best ways to do it is do it artistically. Think poetically, because it fires up the imagination, right? Is to, to do it that way. So that's that's my long, convoluted answer. But yeah, go ahead, go it for it. It me also when you see the Jews that when they're praying at the temple, at the temple wall, you see them rocking back and forth. Oh yeah. There's a rhythm that uh, Hebrew itself has a rhythm to mm -hmm. it. So it just occurred to me while you were playing this that that's probably part of it. It's, it's musical in a way. Yeah. Un unlike what we would think of as musical. Right. But the very language itself causes them the rhythm in their speaking. We, we are not, uh, as 21st century Americans, we are not a poetic people. Um, we, tend to, we tend to view um, even our, our songs, our popular culture songs, even though sometimes they rhyme, they're really not that good poetry, right? I mean, the reason they're there is because they're catchy or because they're, they're put in like a musical hook of some kind. But if you just read the lyrics, they're juvenile, most of them, right? I mean, it's honestly juvenile poetry, especially when you compare it to things like Burns and even Robert Frost, who's pretty simple. You know, he's kind of one of the great Americans, but Walt Whitman or, um, or Lord Byron. You know, you read like legitimate poets and you read through them and then you read like a song lyric. You're like, okay, we're not a poetic people anymore, okay? And there's, there's some reasons for that. We're more of a visual culture. Think about this, if you're in a literary culture and, you don't, and you're not bombarded by visual images all the time, poetry is a great way you know, to be transported to different places and to, to mess with words and language because you're in a literate and oral culture. That makes sense to have poetry, right? Our culture is all about immediate efficiency. Poetry is not efficient, okay? You might wax for 55 lines about the beauty of a woman, okay? Where we would just say, just show me a picture. Yeah. <laughs> right? You, you get what I'm saying? So part of the issue, too, is we have some distance culturally. And even just within Western Civ, we've lost that poetry. It's the same thing in music. That's why a lot of people don't have patience for what we call great art music sometimes. It's because it's not instant, right? If I don't get the hook in the first three minutes, I don't like it. Beethoven's fifth works because everybody recognizes Beethoven's fifth. So even people that like pop music like Beethoven five. But a Bach fugue, forget it. Because it takes too long, right? I, I, I don't get it right away. So, and, and so we're the same with poetry and with literature and with other things. And so with Isaiah, they were in an oral culture. And so having poetry read to them like this was normal. Poetry, I don't know if you see, if you read, uh, watch uh, like uh, the old uh, recreations of like Jane Austen's novels, so like Pride and Prejudice, not the bad Keira Knightley one, but like the, the BBC miniseries from the 90s. If you watch Pride and Pre uh, Prejudice, uh, who's, Colin Firth is Mr. Darcy. Colin Firth is Mr. Darcy. If you watch Pride and Prejudice, they have sessions where they just read poetry to each other. This is the 1800s. This isn't that long ago. And that was normal, right? You do that now and people are going to think you're weird. Or they think you're in a Dungeons and Dragons cult or something. I mean, they, we just don't do stuff like that anymore, but they did. And so that's why I think that's a good question to ask and why that's important that we answer it that way. A couple other comments that I'll let you go because that was the bell there. Um, uh, if you have questions, I just want to say this because Isaiah is 66 chapters. I probably won't cover everything because that's long. I mean, it's one of the longest books of the Bible. So if there's like a question you have that I don't cover... Most of you, I think I'm looking around the room, have my email address, and people on the podcast can get it off the website. Just email me, and I can address the question, because I probably won't cover everything, so I just wanted to kind of say that. Um, and then the last thing I will say is I probably will, 
give you some Western Civ world history stuff that I teach my class because it'll give us context, especially when we get to Assyria, about what's going on, who these people are. So you're going to get a little bit of a Mr. Hayes, the history teacher, uh, in this class a little bit too, whether you like it or not. So I can't turn that brain, that brain off. So you'll, you'll have that. Uh, <laughs> any comments, questions? Yeah, Luther, go for it. So what's what's the best way to, I guess, prepare for, like, your next... Just read. So I'll, I'll be going. I'll be so going. through sec, like, the first five chapters. And yeah, and actually, honestly, we'll just be in one next week. So just Isaiah 1. Oh, God, okay. I'll probably... I mean, so the first few chapters, it'll probably be a chapter or half a chapter a week or whatever. But when we get into, like, the 20s and 30s, it might be bigger sections. Right, Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, but the first one is awesome. The first one has some of the most beautiful passages already in Scripture. You know, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Some really famous. And so we'll unpack some of that. So Isaiah 1 is awesome. Um, so we'll spend more time in one. But there's some other ones where it's not quite as relevant or it's a little more macro that we'll pull back. So these first few, though, it's definitely going to be like, you know, chapter by chapter sort of thing. Okay. So we'll be doing Isaiah 1 to start. So, okay. all right. Any other questions, comments on the podcast? So hopefully, or hopefully you're excited, but I'm excited about it. As you can kind of tell, I'm, I always turn my energy on. By the way, I have, an, I have an ear infection right now, and I'm still got my energy. So that's what shows you. It's not a huge deal. <laughs> or that or, either that or what I'm teaching, it just kind of, the adrenaline gets going, and I just kind of ignore it. But I taught all week with it, apparently, too. And now I'm finally going to get some antibiotics and take care of that. But anyways, uh, any other questions or anything? Let's, we can say the blessings on ourselves here as we close out, and then I'll hit uh, the end of the podcast. May the Lord bless us and keep us. May the Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments about this sermon, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org and make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.